what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Carol Smiley is a Scottish broadcaster and humanist celebrant from Glasgow. She's best known for her role as TV presenter of many popular shows, including the interior design show Changing Rooms, which ran for eight years. Carol went on to present other BBC primetime shows as well as her own chat show. Since leaving primetime TV, Carol has trained as an accredited humanist celebrant for Humanist UK's sister charity, Humanist Society Scotland. In this episode, I'll be talking to Carol about her life since, what led to her career change, and how being a celebrant has affected her outlook on life. Carol, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. You're the first humanist celebrant that we've had on the podcast. So I thought I'd start with a question about that, because obviously all of our actions are motivated by our beliefs and and values. What was it that motivated you to become a celebrant? A good question. Weirdly enough, when I was much younger, I was a Sunday school teacher. Don't spit (laughs) out your tea there, Andrew. Um, (laughs) I am the youngest of four in our family and I never really engaged with church, but rather than go and sit in the church and listen to the sermon, I followed my siblings into the Sunday school to play with the children and, you know, follow the curriculum that they did for all, albeit, you know, songs and artwork and stuff, because it seemed much more fun to me. (laughs) Um, And it ticked the box for my parents. I wasn't sort of, you know, lounging around the house, but I was doing, and I was probably 14 at that time, 14 or 15, very young. You know, youth club was the only kind of social event that was going on for my generation. And therefore that was sort of based around the church in the church hall or whatever. So I just kind of accepted that as being what was normal, what everybody did and and never, ever questioned it. Not once did I question it. Years later, well, first of all, when I got married, my husband was very much against getting involved with the church for our wedding. And so we had an outdoor wedding with a minister, but very much breaking the mould, as it were. We did things very much our way or as much as we could. The minister was a friend of my sister's and therefore he was quite interested in trying something new. And I thought, well, that's kind of meeting everybody halfway. It wasn't the minister that your husband objected to then, it was the church itself. No, it was just the church itself. Oh, right, he'd, the said, I, he'd, never been, he'd never done anything. I'd uh, never been to church as a kid, didn't really feel comfortable about it. And he said, I don't, I don't want involved. I said, well, I think that probably we have to mention elements of it because, you know, that's, that's what you do when you get married. But, you know, when I, when I meet couples now... You know, I've kind of, you know, we're 30 years married this year and I think, oh, how I would do things differently now. (laughs) So the decision to become a celebrant actually came about um, in the interim years. I've been been 25 years in television as a presenter. Um, Most incredible job, loved it, but very much focuses on what you look like, um, how you age, uh, it's, it's the one job I feel is very much uh, experience counts for very little, which is sad mm. um, because I think sometimes you can't just be on a reality show and become a presenter. You, people know who you are, but really there is a skill to it and it, the skill is making it look easy. So yeah. I kind of got to that point. I was over 50 and I was thinking, mm, right, OK, so the work is drying up a bit and I have to either accept 
that uh, I will be offered far lesser jobs than I used to, or I have to cut and run. And to me, I think there's a great uh, amount to be said for quitting while you're ahead. It's scary, and uh, especially in the public, I let that people, you know, they love the term axed or whatever on television. It's all in the headline. She's been dumped or axed. <laughs> no, so I thought, no, you have, to, you have to take control of your own life. It's not somebody else's decision. You can make your own decision. Um, and actually, I was on holiday in Portugal uh, where I met a girl who was an ex-Sky News presenter uh, who worked as a celebrant over there conducting weddings. And I had a very interesting conversation with her, and it just, the, everything clicked when she said, you know, this is the perfect uh, job for the skills that we've we have we've been writing scripts and talking to uh, large groups of people for a very long time it comes second nature to us now uh, what a lovely thing to be able to do um, instead of worrying about some big wig up in the offices upstairs who thinks your face fits or doesn't fit mm. and it kind of lodged in my brain I didn't think too much about it I left television I started my own business and ran that for about eight years but it was always in the back of my mind um, and then when that when I sold the business, I thought maybe this is the time to look into this. So I did a bit of research, I phoned around, um, and I was completely blown away by what was available out there now for couples who want to get married or funerals, etc. And thought I, I'm really interested, but I you know I have no specific qualifications other than what I've been doing. And I went for a meeting with my phone first and said, "Is this mad? People think that was weird seeing me." <laughs> Ah, yeah, you know, of course. Would they look at it and go, is this some, reality? Is this some hidden camera? <laughs> I don't, you know. So, uh, and, and I also thought maybe brides wouldn't, would feel the attention was taken away from them. I don't know. So, but I thought it was worth a conversation. And, and they said, look, why don't you do the training? See how you feel. And if you, you know, give it a go. So I did. And so I've never the, looked back. It's mm, brilliant. You had the skills, um, as you yes. say. Um, but what, were the, what was it that motivated you? The what reasoning. What did you think that you would get out of it? Well, many years ago, actually, when my children were born, they're all quite grown up now, there was, a, there was a moment, actually, where I definitely turned my back on the church and mm. church beliefs. Um, my parents were still alive at the time. They were very keen for us to have them christened. It was a very tricky situation because, again, my husband wasn't keen. Uh, but I wanted out of respect for them to do what they wanted. If it meant that much to them, yeah, okay. So I went to the local church and spoke with the minister who said, well, you have to come to church three times a week for the next six weeks uh, before we can do this. And I said, what's well, a bit like stamping a card or something? But you know, people come for the three times a week, the next six weeks. And as soon as you baptize the child, they don't come back. And, yeah. and that's OK with you. And he said, well, it's just the way it is, really. And I thought, well, that's really sad. Yeah. So I said, so I've just watched the congregation leave here and there's really very few of them under 60 or 70 years of age. Is that not an issue going forward for the church? Because apparently it says, suffer the little children to come unto me. And as much as I don't want to come to church here every week, my children may, when they're of a certain age, make up their own mind if they've had some kind of, you know, exposure to it. And he was very steadfast and said, nope, you come for the next six weeks or I don't do it. And I thought, wow. So I, you know, I was kind of said, well, my parents and said, well, we'll do it. We'll, we can be kind of the guarantor, if you like. We, it's up, we're the church members. You don't have to join the church. We're the church members. And they still said no. And I thought, well, stick it then. Anyway, I, as I say, I was on a shaky peg as it was. And that was probably the thing Push that just off. tipped me over the edge. Um, and so we didn't. And my parents were upset at the time. I was, an, I was upset for them. 
but I decided, well, you know, what else is there? And I didn't, if I'm honest, I didn't think about it for many, many, many years. Um, And only, uh, as I say, when I started researching, I thought, wow, there is something out there that is very much aligned to what I think I feel and I believe. So Um, you did retain an idea that it was important to give moments uh, like this significance, moments like having a child or, or marrying or... That, that's marrying, marrying at that point 30 years ago, um, I think it was very uh, unheard of to do anything other than the church. Who would solemnise the marriage? Yes, who would solemnise the marriage? Who would make it a legal thing? I, I didn't like the idea of going to a registry office. It felt a little bit sort of dumbed down and very uh, too casual, whereas uh, I wanted it to be an event for my family and my, and my husband and I, and um, I wanted it to be fun. Uh, so we did kind of, you know, we did do it our own way. It just if it had been now, it'd be very much more our own way. But I have to say, Andrew, in, in the intervening, uh, I've been now doing this sort of two and a half years, and the stark difference from my life before to my life now is just amazing. I'm now working in a far kinder environment um, where colleagues support one another. It's not competitive. Uh, it is very much... Um, all-encompassing and there's a warmth there that I've never felt in television in all the years I did it and that's fine you know I, I understand it's a competitive thing but um, I just never thought about it before but so, you know when I had to do my very first baby funeral we have a closed Facebook group and WhatsApp group as I'm sure you know mm-hmm. to communicate with our colleagues and I put something up saying I, I how do I even approach this how do what do I ask um, I'm a bit worried that I might see the wrong thing. And they were, I mean, they came forward in their drove saying, I'll meet you for a coffee. I'll sit at the back. I'll do, you can do this. You know, and it was just amazing. Actually, I was fine in the end, but uh, knowing that they were there mm. was hugely supportive to me and beneficial to me. Cause I thought, although we work alone, we don't really work alone. Mm. They're always there. They're always there offering support or not if you don't need it. Um, and it's just great to meet up with them occasionally. I've, I've made some really great friends in a very short period of time that I know um, will always be there. It's yeah. Fab. I think that's what a lot of humanist professionals who work as celebrants or pastoral carers or, or in the different spheres always say. There's, there's, there's just such a very nurturing community of practice around you. It's, uh, it's yeah. a wonderful environment to, to work in. I mean, that sounds a bit, you know, a bit kind of like, yeah, all such good people. it's not, it's I not like that. At all. So I don't wonderful. mean it like that. I mean, it, uh, you know, there are, what I loved was I'm actually, when I first joined, I thought, gosh, I'm one of the younger ones. This is great. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but, but the older ones have so much experience and great stories and, you know, never judge a book by its cover. That's what I would say, Andrew. You might look at, you know, one of my colleagues, male or female, think, okay, you're probably quite um, straight the way you do your ceremonies. You're quite, uh, you know, like a kindly old man. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's, if you don't want that, they can be a riot. And, and I love that about them. They're, I've, I've really learned not to judge a book by its cover. What have you got out of your experience of doing ceremonies? I mean, what were the big, anything particularly surprised you about the experience once you got into it, into the thick of it or change you at all, change yourself? Uh, well, when I first did the training, we started with funerals and then went on to baby namings and then weddings at the end. I think it's actually changed around now, but at the time, that's what it was. And, and in my head, I suppose I had weddings as being my focus because it's such a lovely event. It's a happy event. Um, and I, I could see myself doing that. However, um, I thought, well, if you're going to do 
become a celebrant, you should embrace all aspects of it and then make a decision once you've done a few of all ceremonies because you don't have to do all of them if you don't want to. Um, so I, I began with the funeral training and as, and as the, the training kind of went on and on and on, I got more anxious about the thought of uh, going to people's houses and sitting down with them to discuss their loved one's life because, you know, there's parts of Glasgow are, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, they can be a, a bit wild and a bit scary. And I thought, what happens when I rock up? Um, and they go, no, I've gone off the telly. Um, and with that, oh, I don't know how this is going to go. But I just put my big girl pants on, went in, and I have had some of the biggest laughs, some of the um, biggest misconceptions proved to me. Um, generally, people are so grateful that you are there to help them through potentially the worst day of their life. Um, and the bend over backwards for you, they're very real, very raw. Um, People I would might have looked at and thought, oh, gosh, you're quite scary, are not at all scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, they're very uh, uh, kind of open and warm and very kind of thrilled that you would be willing to uh, write a tribute for someone that really mattered to them. Um, and so I kind of really got into the swing of it. And then along came the wedding train. I'm like, oh, I'm really enjoying myself doing this now. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so um, I do both, um, but I, my funerals are quite busy. Um, and I probably do two or three a week and probably two or three weddings a week as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's great. I love the diversity from going from, you know, kind of perhaps some crazy life story. And I love the honesty. Some people are very open and they say, oh, we did this and this and this. And I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> and you're okay for me to say that? Oh, I, that's what it was like. Don't, you know, don't hold back. And I think, oh, I love that. And they say, just be yeah. open and honest. It's when they're very tight-lipped and concerned about what other people think. And, you know, that that's kind of not so much fun because people are concerned about being judged, which is sad because we are people, we're human beings, and we do crazy things, we do funny things, we do sad things, and we're not all perfect, far from it. Um, so if you can actually tell someone's life the way it is and the way they would choose to tell it themselves, that's the way it should be done, I think. But obviously you're, you're, you're driven by the family. Is that what inspires you as in, as in sort of like the vocation element of this then to, to, to honour, in the case of a funeral, you feel that you're, you're doing your best to, to honour the life of that person? There is no greater privilege than coming out of a funeral and people saying, God, I didn't know you knew her. I think, no, I never met her. But obviously I hit it right, which is great. I have at the moment three living funerals on my on my books, if you like, yeah. uh, three people who are who know that um, they have a life threat. Uh, one is elderly, and two are uh, have life threatening diseases that they know their time is coming. And I mean, no greater privilege to sit down with someone who is brave enough to tell it like it is and to take control of their own ceremony, if only to take the hardest part away from those they love. Not always their families are as brave, but they are brave. And that's such a privilege because you know when you stand up there, you're absolutely saying what they wanted. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I couldn't, uh, couldn't speak higher of them. The one lady in particular, I mean, she sends me emails all the time and the title of the email is still here. <laughs> she's hilarious. She's absolutely hilarious. Um, and she updates me every so often and the email comes in, my heart sinks and I think, oh no, is this it? Nope, still here. Not yet. 
Oh, well, that's quite yes. good. That's life enhancing <laughs> on a daily basis. Oh, it's, it's, oh, it is. And you know, you go home at night and you think, never ever take your life for granted. Never be afraid to change things you're not happy with because you only get one shot at it. And that's really what humanism is all about to live the very best life that you can because you know, you're not going to get another chance. So don't waste it. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. You mentioned earlier, um, in the context of your career change, um, well, you said talked about quitting while you're ahead, but then you also said, you know, taking control of your own life. And that, that's really mm-hmm. what you're saying again there, isn't it? So I feel yes. like that's probably, that sounds like that's pretty important to you. Um, has that always been your position through your life, both for yourself and for others, the idea that people should you know, take control of their own choices and lives in that way? Is that important to you? Yes, it is important. I don't think I maybe thought about it that way when I was younger. Uh, I've always quite enjoyed scaring myself (laughs) whether it's just pushing myself into you know life gets a bit kind of comfortable and a little bit boring then you you should try something off the wall what's the worst that can happen you fail or you it didn't work out you gave it a shot that's important to me whether it's learning to ice skate at 45 which I did or um I don't know doing something completely mad uh it's it's it makes you feel alive and and it's all part of um, building your own life story because no one's going to do it for you. The door isn't going to ring and someone's going to say, here, here's this you know, chance for you. You've got to go out and find it. You've got to to push yourself out of your comfort zone every so often. I don't mean every week, but you know, if you can try something that scares you a little bit sometimes, you never know. You might surprise yourself how much you, how well you cope with it or how much you enjoyed it. You did that when you jumped into being uh, an entrepreneur, didn't you? You mentioned a, yes. a moment ago that you uh-huh. built your own business. That is quite a... I've, I don't think I've had on the podcast anyone who's... We've had people who've worked in business, but not people who've sort of taken that leap, which entrepreneurialism is, isn't it? Because you're really taking yes. a leap into an unknown. It's a, it's a big commitment and a choice and a, um, a sort of courage. Um, is that how you felt going into it? And what, what was it that motivated you into that move? Because it's quite a big switch. It was a massive switch. Um, I, as I say, television was definitely waning. And, you know, I look at it quite, uh, I'm quite pragmatic about that because I think you have a lifespan in TV and everyone's day will come. It doesn't matter who they are, how successful they are, how huge a name they are, everyone's day will come. And the sooner you get your head around that, the better. And stop, don't take it personally. It's just the way it is. So, um, as I say, I knew it was coming to, to an end and I thought, well, I, I would rather do something completely different. I had spotted a gap in the market um, after having a conversation with my two daughters about periods and uh, their concerns when they were growing up about sleepovers or you know staying in anyone's house or going on to certain events and worried that they might have an accident. And, and it sort of struck me that, gosh, in all these years, there are certain things in life are guaranteed. <laughs> one is death and one is women will have periods every month. Um, and it doesn't matter how 
uh, wealthy you are, how poor you are, how successful you are. It's just a fact of life. So how come nothing in all this time has changed? I love a yeah. wee taboo, me, Andrea. Obviously, I didn't realise I did, good. but I obviously love a taboo. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I thought, well, there must be a, an easier way or a better way in all these years than what you know I used to deal with when I was a kid. And therefore, that's where it came from originally. And then I got involved with something called um, an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial exchange in entrepreneurial Scotland who very much encourage um, young uh, entrepreneurs when I say young I mean business young not as in personally young Mm. uh, to come together uh, in one hub and be supported by expertise and funding and taught how to run a business how to avoid you know most people avoid the boring bits like spreadsheets and banking and uh, and want to do all the nice things like creating Um, so they kind of force you into into learning how to do all these things. And so I, I did go into it quite naively. If I'm looking back now, I thought, oh, how hard could it be? Turns out it's quite hard. <laughs> and, and what was the most important part of it for you? Was it you've honed in on a problem, which even better is a taboo, let's sort, sort this out. Or was it the, the business building um, commercial aspect of it? I expect it was both, but what, what, which bit was, the, was what really got you out of bed? um it was both hmm. the injustice uh possibly riled me that it was the injustice people of talk this, about, oh the taboo injustice people not wanting to talk about women's bits down there you know like oh, for goodness sake we're grown-ups and you talk to people who've got daughters and they still stick their head in the sun if right. a guy has been brought up in a family with no sisters that's an issue because they've never it's never been discussed and therefore it's just just downright awkward on any level um Yet that standing up in front of a, a group of young people, perhaps at a student event or something, I did a lot of public speaking about it. Um, they're far more open today. They have social media. They get more information in a very different way than they did in my generation. Unfortunately, it's massive amounts of money, which is quite sad. Um, you know, you go on daytime TV and if you're not if you're a commercial product, they don't want to talk about it, which I never understood because, yeah, a book or a film, you can. So what, to me... I don't see the difference if you've got a, pro- a product that actually is quite life-changing for many, for half the population. Yeah. Why can we not talk about it? But yeah, anyway. And, and they're very keen to point the finger and go, oh, you must suffer. Tell us all about your problem. You think, well, you can't say in one hand, I don't have a problem because that then alienates all your yes. customers. But equally, I don't want to be the one standing up there going, oh, yes, I pee when I jump. No. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't know, do they, how, how widespread continence difficulties are? I mean, mm. it's one of those taboos, which is so, it's a, it, like when they, I remember when reading about the beginning of the NHS and at the beginning of the NHS, one of the most common problems was something like women with prolapsed uteruses and, yeah. and who until then for decades, you know, generation of women after women had just been suffering in silence. Just you know, with quiet. Yeah, the, the, the scale of the, of the problem. Um, is so large but it's so unknown because of taboo and that is taboo busting is a humanist endeavour isn't it? I suppose it is I hadn't thought about it I mean see I was already training Andrew I was already (laughs) training (laughs) but yeah I I suppose it's the whole language around it is is never moved in hundreds of years none of them are attractive incontinence is a horrible word It, it just conjures up images of old ladies not, and it's not an old lady thing. There's various degrees of it. Okay, there's, there's full-blown incontinence, but then there's, you know, there's the women who've just had babies. There's women who are about to have babies. There's women who have had um, lots of different conditions, whether it's endometriosis or um, whatever yeah. else. You know, it, it, 
and yet it's just not discussed because it's it's kind of seen as not um, polite conversation. And that's sad in a way. You know, we can we can talk about some pretty outrageous things. We can read headlines about rape and um, female genital mutilation and all these things. But the thing that half the population have to deal with every month of their entire adult lives, we don't we won't talk about that. Mm. And that riles me because I just think, oh, grow up, everyone. Will you? It's all right. I'm not going to give you a demo. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> something disgusting it's just a fact really and actually you would all cease to be if it didn't happen where does that come from in you do you think that feeling about uh, that desire to <laughs> that being riled in that way is it from your upbringing or is it something that's happened since did you have a very pent-up upbringing or was it the opposite no I had a really happy upbringing but I'm the youngest <laughs> of four so I'm quite gobby I think <laughs> you have um, to fight your way up yeah yeah you know, if you don't shout loud you're not heard uh, yeah, youngest of four, definitely I, and I see that in my youngest of three that I have now. She's definitely the kind of um, more dramatic one, I suppose, <laughs> or cre- artistic, creative sort of soul, and can be quite, you know, up there or down there, uh, shouty. But um, she'll kill me for that. <laughs> <laughs> However, yes, I, I guess also of my in my family, I was I was the only. Uh, there's quite a gap between me and my brothers and sisters so my brother is 15 years older than me and my nearest sister right. is eight years older than me so um I sort of when my siblings all left, it was just me and my parents and the relationship definitely changed we had more of an open discussion about things not as open as I would have liked and they're no longer here anymore I'm afraid sorry so um yeah and and yet I, I married a guy who was also the youngest of five um, with a very similar upbringing and attitude to marriage and attitude to relationships so that we're we just clicked very well because we have this a similar outlook I think on life. And is that the way you've parented as well in that open sort of collaborative? Yes definitely way? I think we work as a team um, don't ask me and then if I say no go and ask him. <laughs> um, we work, uh, we discuss, uh, have a lot of open discussions as a family, nothing is off the table. Uh, we encourage questioning and you know if you can put a better argument across then change my mind, come on let's hear it. It's not my way or the highway um, mm. and I have, we both very much tried to bring our three children up as three individuals. They, they are very different in in every way and therefore encourage what their strengths are and um, you know kind of support them in their weaknesses but don't assume because number one does this that you'll do the same because I think that's wrong I think everybody should have their own um, own shot at life and we all have different talents that's great I love it they're all very different. That seems to be a, a theme that runs through what you've said this sort of respect for the individual human being and their differences and their own individual stories and so on. Is that one of the things that you find interesting in your celebrancy work? Yes, very much so. Um, everybody is different. And just when I think I've heard it all, oh, no, I haven't heard it all. <laughs> I come home and I sit and I smile to myself thinking, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. I must have by now. You know, some families when you're when I'm going to do a funeral, or whatever, they talk about the the grandfather's life or whatever, and how they grew up as a family, all in the same what we call a close in Glasgow, which is a tenement block. So grandma and granddad lived upstairs, and mum and dad are there with the 
seven children in a two-bedroom flat or whatever, and the cousins are here, and, they, and I think that is so different to my life, so different. I've encouraged, we've both encouraged our children to travel the world, to go get out there and see what's out there. You know, it's a huge place, it's fantastic. Is that the right way? I don't know, maybe it's not, it, not the right way because what I see in these families is so much love and support um, around them. They didn't need loads of school friends because they had 15 cousins that lived in the same block. And the childcare was always taken care of because granny is upstairs or granddad's downstairs or, you know, and I think how lovely that they'll all remember their grandparents, you know, for a very long time for very personal things that the, the interaction with them. My, as I say, I'm the youngest of a big family, so I never met my grandparents. So I, I didn't have that. I don't feel I've missed out, but it's really interesting and opened my eyes to think, don't think because you've done it this way that yours is the right way. There are lots of right ways for different people. Um, and just keeping quiet and listening is, is a very valuable uh, lesson. Collaborative environments, the diversity of human stories, taking on taboos and injustices and building your own life story. Thank you, Carol, for telling us what you believe. You're very welcome. Thank you. That was Carol Smiley telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanists UK, and this was the first episode of the third season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining as a supporter or a member. You can also, to find out more about humanism, purchase the Sunday Times best-selling The Little Book of Humanism, available now at all good bookshops. Mm-hmm.